This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio. My guest today is photographer Cindy Vasco. Cindy's photography is focused on abandoned buildings and urban exploration, but she also shoots a lot of nature and wildlife photography. Specifically, her macro photography is fantastic. I first became aware of Cindy's work through Twitter, which she posts on quite often. She is one of a handful of other urbex photographers, and Cindy has authored nine books to date. And for that reason, this episode will focus on urban exploration, photography, and to a lesser degree, publishing. Thanks for joining me, Cindy, and welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's my great pleasure to be here with you today. All right. So we uh, we came to know each other through Twitter, which is how I've made quite a few new uh, contacts in the recent, I don't know, past year and a half, two years. I've been really active on Twitter. Um, how long have you been on Twitter? I've been on since, I think, 2011, but actually I've only entered the Twitterverse in the past year and a half, two years. I took an interest in it just recently. Yeah. So it's been pretty stagnant for the prior, for the first seven years, I'd say. Yeah. It, you get out of it what you put into mm-hmm. it, I think. Mm-hmm. So if you engage with other people, then they're more than willing to, to talk yeah. back, communicate, share, share your work. Absolutely. It's, it's been very fortunate for me in many respects. That's cool. I'm not sure exactly how I uh, first became aware of your work. But as soon as I noticed you were shooting um, the abandoned buildings and that type of photography, which is something that I've been interested in for a while, that's what really attracted me. And that's how I noticed um, the name Cindy Vasco. Or how do you pronounce your name? Vasco. Vasco? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I first uh, noticed the name Cindy Vasco. Over time, I realized that you've published several books with yes. your photography in it. How many books is it now? I'm on my ninth book now. I have, I'm, I'm doing a total of 13. I have five on the market now. Uh, a few are waiting for release and there's been a little delay for obvious reasons, but um, I just signed a contract about a month ago for five additional books. So I'm starting my ninth book, which is, gonna, is going to be Washington, DC. So I'm excited Very about cool. writing my hometown. <laughs> Is that where you're living currently? I'm, I'm, I live I live in Northern Virginia, but I'm only five or six miles from the D.C. border. So it's just the D.C. metro area. It's very Washington, D.C. where I live. <laughs> cool. And you said it's hometown, so that's where you grew up? No, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, an industrial city, and uh, left in my 30s, left D.C. in my 30s and moved to this area. My husband transferred his business to Washington and I followed him and I, I left a very good job, but I started grad school. That was the condition <laughs> moving away from home. <laughs> oh, nice. So, so what, what was your uh, graduate studies in? Um, my major was political economics and my secondary field of study was national security policy and I was on a quantitative analysis track. That was my method of research. 
Well, <laughs> you are a very good candidate for the dead hand radio. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> Cold War era history yeah. and politics, but mostly yeah. technology is right up my alley. Yeah, and it's been my life too. I grew up in that period and it was terrifying. <laughs> yes, I agree. I, I'm a child of the 70s. I was born in 66. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, uh, I know exactly how you feel. The 70s were a very scary time. Yeah. Even for a little kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I was Ooh. very young, but I remember every minute of that talking. Oh, well, if you don't mind, I'd sure. like to, to talk about, we'll talk about your photography more, but let's sure. dive right into okay. some of your experiences with the Cold mm -hmm. War as mm -hmm. a child in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Cuban Missile Crisis was 63. Yes. Yes, I was seven. Seven years old. <laughs> now you know how old I am. I'm, I'm well up there. Uh, uh, I, I could do the math, but you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. What's most interesting to yeah. me is that you lived through a period of time yeah. that was, I mean, that was almost was, the end of the world. Yes, it was the first time two superpowers face nuclear annihilation. And it was a very uh, close uh, happening. It, yeah. it could have happened in a, in a second. It was 13 days of tenseness, as I remember. It was awful. And my father was a, a news junkie, so I grew up being one too. And uh, we always watched the news. And he didn't, he didn't believe in hiding the truth from, from me and with regard to anything, because he, he, he always spoke of his World War II experiences. And um, I was very much attuned to what was going on in the world, even though I was young. But um, I do remember the dinnertime conversations and, and my parents didn't talk about it openly in front of me, but I could hear them in the other room. Uh, which city do you think will be uh, nuked first? Will it be New York City? Will it be Washington, DC? <laughs> and it was just terrifying period. It was a, a, a scary, tremendous, uh, tense time of brinksmanship between two great powers yes and i'm glad they both had sane heads at the end and prevailed <laughs> definitely yeah definitely were you in what, what city were you living in at that time allentown pennsylvania okay so um so you would have been right in the middle of yeah. if a nuclear exchange oh, happened yeah absolutely yeah and i remember my dad telling me giving me orders and to my mother when he would go to work he said if 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 that air raid siren goes off, you march right across the street to the to the uh, nuclear shelter at the at the National Guard Armory and don't wait for me. Just go. <laughs> it okay, was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and fortunately, the the nukes in Cuba were never activated, so right. you would have had right. a little bit of a warning before the nukes actually reached. Yes. The, yeah, but the it United wouldn't take States. long for them to get here. I mean, that's what everybody doesn't understand, that once they're launched, you have 30 minutes to go where. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the warning is more or less to let you know that doomsday is on its way. Because even if you survive the initial exchange, you know, that mutually assured destruction was in place for a reason. Everybody was going to launch everything. Yes, and second strike capabilities is part of our nuclear doctrine as well. So it was just uh, genocide on a world scale. Yeah. So thankfully, we didn't uh, actually realize, uh, you know, that that didn't come to fruition. But 
uh, it was still scary time. Now there were several other, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there were several other incidents throughout the cold war era. Yeah. And, and errors actually, it's a few errors. I yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, we've come close too many times for my comfort actually. <laughs> and so your studies in college uh, and now, is that something that you do professionally? No, I don't. <laughs> I, um, I wanted to be an analyst. That's what um, I actually, I took a very strange turn in, in my uh, career. I started college, uh, I was a pre-law major. I wanted to go to law school for nuclear law. That was all I wanted to do. I didn't want to study any other kind of law. And um, I got, I graduated college early. I was in two and a half years. So I thought I was a little too young to um, go go to law school. I wanted to give myself a few more years. And, um, and then I met my husband and that changed things. And then I still just thought I would go to law school, but then Three Mile Island happened and the nuclear industry just collapsed completely. And, and um, I didn't want to pursue it, any other field of law. Uh, so I pursued graduate school uh, in, and I thought I'd be an analyst with one of the government agencies, maybe the Energy Department, maybe the CIA, <laughs> maybe uh, Department of Defense. I, I, it didn't really matter. But then when my husband decided he wanted to go to Russia, I kind of lost all chances of that happening because I would never get a security clearance. <laughs> so I took a crazy turn um, and I had... I have a very diverse background. I was director of advertising for seven years for a Fortune 200 corporation. That was very, that was a wonderful job. And that's the job I had in Pennsylvania before I moved to DC to pursue my graduate studies. And I then went to graduate school full time and my husband, I, I assisted my husband in his business. He had a business domestically for a while, but then he decided to move it to Russia and um, it was it was very difficult. And once he passed away in, in Moscow, I I had a turn on a dime, and I I couldn't. I was in the, I was in my PhD dissertation phase, the last phase of my graduate school studies, and I had to shelve it because I didn't have any income coming in, and I, we just moved into a new house in Virginia, so I uh, I got a job working with a hundred attorneys. <laughs> at a construction law firm. <laughs> I, I would really like to get into that deeper. Um, but first, I want to take it back to your, mm-hmm. your interest in nuclear yes. law. Was, yes. Did, did that, do you think that stemmed from your experiences as a child? I think it, a, a little bit, but I am fascinated with, I was going to either be a nuclear lawyer, nuclear engineer. I wanted either or, and I chose the law field. Um, regrettably, instead of the engineering field. My dad uh, had a focus in that, so I, it, it rubbed off of me. But I was always a proponent since the 70s of nuclear fusion. That's my big love of, of engineering. I, I see that as our future, and I've always felt that was our future, and, that, and, and nuclear fission engineering is a step towards that. So that was my focus. It was a very long-term projection for me. I wanted to 
uh, advance into a nuclear fusion uh, sector. Interesting. Eventually. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not trying to get political on right. you, but even with the disasters we've had in yes. Chernobyl yes. and Fukushima, do you yes. still feel that way? No, I, I, I'm not a proponent of fission. I'm, I actually, I, I find it uh, somewhat dangerous, although I think our safeguards are very secure, but that doesn't account for the rest of the world always. But I always felt nuclear fission engineering was a stepping stone to the peaceful, uh, safe nuclear fusion engineering concept. It's, 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 it's limitless supply of energy. And, and that's what I was hoping fission would bridge to fusion. Now, is, if, if I'm not mistaken, is mm -hmm. fusion the one that requires the, the element that we get from mining the moon? Yes. They, well, that's one of, that's another step. I mean, at, in its optimal state, it's, the, it's using deuterium, which is one sixteenth of seawater. And uh, so that would be the optimal engineering design where it's just water. But right now they need, um, they need helium and, and tritium and deuterium in a combination. And, and the moon has, has that element. But, it's the helium three that the yes moon, yes yeah. yes and it's not a, an abundant supply on, on our planet right so but the engineering optimally is just to use deuterium as the basis for plasma uh, creation and it's just completely safe and uh, yeah in that form and in, in yeah in that form uh, it is yeah tritium is radioactive of course but um, in its optimal phase it's not radioactive it's limitless it's a breeder it's it's and and the russians came up with the best design for it actually they have the tokamak um, design and that's what the world is adopting right now in experimental reactors oh interesting yeah. so is um does that have anything to do with what your husband was doing over there um, was he he was he 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 installed perimeter security around facilities okay uh, so that was his primary focus uh and he went over to russia in 91 gorbachev was still in power although in his final months and i was a little frantic about it because i knew i could see what was happening in the country it's a different country now uh but back then in the 90s it was very unstable they didn't have institutional mechanisms in place. The infrastructure was was devoid of legal apparatus and uh, yeah, it was it was virtually a new wild was, west. Yes, the the whole government the whole government collapsed. All of the satellite states of Russia were seceding from the the Russian Empire or from the Soviet right. Empire. Right. And it and it was it was a lot of crime at the time when he was there, and unfortunately, <laughs> uh, were wasn't there several like mafia organizations that? Yes, unfortunately, I have too much. <laughs> They're too close for comfort for me. That's yeah. I, I don't want to yeah. get into specifics. Yeah, it's all right. Basically, that that came out of a lot of political leaders <laughs> that were. Um, basically out of a job and wanted yeah. to hold on to some semblance of power. Right. right. So and they and it, became little, little mafia bosses. Yeah. Cartels. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it was, um, 
rampant. It absolutely was. Um, it terrified me. The uncertainty of the country. How long was it unstable like that? It was unstable when he died. It was still pretty unstable. Um, it, I, uh, it's different now. Um, I don't think it's, um, you don't have these small groups preying on businessmen like they did when he was there. Uh, and he didn't have the backsheesh transactions. I don't think you do. I don't know. Cause I kind of left that. You pretty hands off with it now. Yeah. It, it was an eight year, I had an eight year struggle with that after he died legal, mm -hmm. an eight year legal struggle with those people after he passed away. So yeah. it was, it was quite hellish for me. So I, I did read the, the blog post that you posted about the, um, the incident and some of mm -hmm. the history leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And you seem to think that his death was not an accident. Oh, no, I'll never. No, no, no. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have documentation of his threat of threats. And, oh. and even the day he died, uh, somebody from his company called me to tell me that he passed away and said he, he was under threat uh, three weeks before uh, he passed away. So I, I was always aware of that. I was always terrified because he, I forced him to tell me about those issues two years before he died because uh, his behavior had changed. Uh, he wasn't the usual comical self he always was he was he was tense he, he didn't joke around like he normally did and i knew something was wrong and then i just delved into it much deeper after he told me and it, it just i was never at ease while he was there mm -hmm. especially those last two years of so was it, what, what was the year that he died june of 97 and and i uh, he so his company Mm -hmm. uh, and again, no specifics, but his right. company was a service provider to the nuclear facilities. Uh, no, not well. Any indus industry, industrial complex that needed perimeter security. His oh, big, okay. his big contract in in uh, Russia was Gazprom. He had a massive contract for security uh, perimeter perimeter security install installments all over the country, not just Moscow and Siberia, everywhere. Okay. He traveled all over Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. Uh, he, he traveled everywhere uh, wow. and, and other companies as well. And because of the lawlessness, there was mm -hmm. somehow he got involved with the they, mafia? Well, they approached him uh, mm -hmm. in the payments, you know, protection payments, things like that. And, mm -hmm. and then um, the last time I saw him, he, he came home in April 97 and he, he told me a few things. He said, he, he, he tried to assure me that it's different now. Things are safe. He's got protection of, of the corporate umbrella now. And I didn't believe him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, it, it was never, I never was convinced that he was safe and, and he would, I, I would lose contact with him for weeks at a time sometimes. And it was maddening especially during the 1993 constitutional crisis in Moscow. That's when I was at wit's end, not knowing what was going on, because you could see this unfold on TV, the, the, the showdown between the government and the, you know, the parliament and uh, the tanks rolling down the street. And the, it was, I didn't hear from him for 10 days. Who was, I didn't know where he was. <laughs> who was the president of yeah, uh, yeah. Russia at that time? Yeltsin. 
Yeltsin. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And our president at that time was Clinton, Clinton. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And wasn't there a civil war breaking out in Bosnia at that time? Yes. Yes. Kosovo and Bosnia. Yes. It was, um, it was a tense time in yeah. that part of the world. And, and the group that put the squeeze on my husband was, was a Chechen group. Okay. So, so what was the cause of death? Well, <laughs> the death certificate said heart insufficiency. <laughs> Which is what everybody dies from. <laughs> right. I, I don't, I have my suspicions because he became extremely ill 24 hours before he died. Extremely. And he, he was so ill, he went to a clinic, which he never did because he was terrified of doctors. Yeah. Uh, so he, he had a tremendous headache and he was perspiring. I mean, I got word that, he had a heart attack, which I, I believe he did, but I don't believe it was natural. And uh, some people said he died of a stroke, but um, he suddenly became ill. And, um, and then I, I requested the autopsy because that was required. Uh, that was a, a government uh, requirement because he, he died overseas. And, but it was in Russian. So I had to wait six months for the autopsy to be translated. Wow. That's not right. And there yeah. were some, yeah, it, I, I'm, I must say I was extremely disappointed with the United States embassy. There was something else going on there that um, was, was, was not on, on the level with me uh, regarding my communications with them. Yeah. I scared a lot of people. <laughs> With my big mouth. Do do you believe that he might have been poisoned? Yes, <laughs> yes, that's my first instinct. I do, I absolutely do. But I don't have any proof. I could, what I could do, it, it, I don't have the funds for it. But uh, I could exhume the body, and they could, you know, in, do antibody tests and see if something is a, a marker is present, but. So there was, during the autopsy, there was no toxicology report? No, no, no. But there were some unusual, um, there was a puncture wound, a three, a, a, a two day old puncture wound over his heart area, a pin, like a pin prick or something. And, um, and that was a glaring signal to me. I, I honestly don't know for sure, but my suspicions say otherwise. Well, I'm I'm very sorry for your loss. Oh, that's thank you. It it's been a long time, but yeah, but it's it was it was difficult. Uh, the aftermath was especially difficult. So, do you want to get into that a little bit? I could. I Didn't have no problem. You, so you you say you were working with the embassy, the U.S. embassy, mm -hmm. to uh, to how long did it take you to get his body back? Two weeks. Hmm. That was a problem too. Yeah. Um, uh, they didn't, they, they had the option of me just leaving him there. <laughs> it's a no way. <laughs> I was fighting with his company as well um, to uh, help. And they, they, the problem I had with this corporation, he, he originally was an independent businessman in, over there in Russia, but then he, he joined a, a multinational corporation, was president of their division in Russia. So I always thought that was an odd thing to do, but, but I kind of 
assumed he did that for protection. Mm. He had the umbrella of a large multinational on his side, but it certainly didn't protect him. But uh, the embassy shut down on me um, about two, two days, a day after the next day. I spoke to the embassy the day he died and they were very cooperative and very kind. And, and I made some comments about his company and they thought it was stranger than to act that way. And then the next day I, I spoke to his company, the, the, one of the vice presidents of the, of the American based corporation. And he lied to me about something. And, and I knew right away that I was in trouble <laughs> with this whole situation. And I mentioned that the embassy said certain things and, and, and that's when everything shut down on me. They contacted the embassy and the embassy just shut. The person I was speaking to was transferred out of Moscow to another office in Russia. I don't even know where he went. <laughs> it sounds like you were getting the major runaround. Yes. Yes, I was. And it, yes. it sounds like that. It sounds like the, um, it, 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 was it all related, like the closing of the embassy related to the incident with your husband? Possibly? I don't know. I don't know. But, but this company had a lot of power and I wouldn't be surprised if they influenced that, that transfer because they were quite powerful in, in, in this country, in our government and in, in Russia. Very powerful. Wow. Yes, it was, uh, it, it was leveling to me the next day. Uh, I, it was 12 hours later when everything unraveled for me. And, and then I started this big battle with the corporation that on top of the other battle that was coming after me, it was eight years of legal trauma. And um, because I just wanted the truth. You were probably a little bit more prepared than most people because yes. of your background, yes. Yes. your education. Yes, and that, that was what helped me get through that situation because I worked in, I, you know, I, I was working in a law firm and I knew the procedures and, um, and I did find a very good attorney to help me that wasn't afraid because I can't tell you how many attorneys were, wouldn't take take my situation <laughs> that speaks volumes for itself right there yes, yes. attorneys that are afraid to take a case yeah, yeah that that says a lot right there yeah yeah and i and i did have some actually i didn't i didn't have any frightening experiences personally after he died but i did have several too many before he died in in virginia it was threats um, breaking into my house, hurting my dog, uh, opening up the gas valve in my house, you know, the, the gas valve on the outside of my house. Right. Um, it was being, and, and photos taken of me in weird places of driving around Virginia or Maryland. Or, and sent to you? They were sent, my, my husband had, was involved in a lawsuit before he died and I inherited it unfortunately they substituted my name for his name and it was part of the mob 
Just to clarify, your husband was being sued by somebody, or he was the the sewer? No, he was he was a defendant in the case. Okay, um, so somebody he, he was fought, suing him. Yeah, he and fought, then after yeah. his death, they carried the suit over to your name. W- yes. Were you part of that company? No, but they found some um, little. They were coming after all my assets. Is what they were doing, and I didn't have. I just you know I had my house and. Because uh, everything else was gone, frozen, and um, so I um So let's no let, let, let me take a step back sure. for it's just a, a second. It's I, very I, confusing. Yeah, I <laughs> I wanted to establish if he was murdered, and you strongly believe that he was assassinated. Yep. What was the motivation? Um, money extortion. It was all extortion. It was all he had these huge contracts, brought in lots of money multi-million dollar contracts and they wanted a cut. That's as simple mm-hmm. as it can be. And he and kept leading him. Well, he, you know, I, I know he said, I know when I saw him in April before he died, uh, when he came home, uh, he said he was done with them. He's not, he's not um, going to cater to them anymore. He's done. And I begged him to go to authorities with this. I said, don't assume they're going to leave you alone because you have, you think you have the protection of a multinational corporation. I said, don't assume that. And he just, he was naive in many respects regarding those kinds of issues. And um, he, he just didn't take that to heart. And then a month later, two months later, he was gone. But so, but yeah, it was all, I mean, he told me he had to, he had to uh, turn over money and, and I, his, Unfortunately, some of his old business partners, when he was independent, were part of that group. That's what was so terrifying. I didn't know it. He didn't know it. It it was. So he he had basically been involved with them, even though he didn't realize that he'd been involved with them for years. Yes, he, he, he had. And he was it was those people, one person in particular, that convinced him to go to Russia because of the opportunities. And when he severed his relationship with this person is, is when everything escalated because he went to the multinational, joined them. And because um, I never understood, he was an entrepreneur all his life. He never wanted to work for anyone except himself. And all of a sudden now he's work, working for a multinational corporation. <laughs> so, yeah. And so that was the person that came after me then after he died. Do you want to get into that? I could. I, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it. It's it's, it's all on, on record somehow, <laughs> although I think some of it's highly redacted. <laughs> so there, the the lawsuit was filed against your husband, and after his death, it was carried over the into state, your name. The estate of Stephen Vasco, which was me. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so. it was the estate. It was, yeah, it, it was trying to seize everything I owned. And I was in my house for two years and they weren't getting my house. Did you win that case? Um, you know what? It's interesting. Um, no, uh, they tried to, they, there were actually nine defendants in that case. And I was the last one. I wouldn't leave. I refused to cave in. I fought them for eight years and it was, they tried to break me down with attrition, with papering me to death with motions and cross motions and answers. And, and it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And, um, I, I retained my husband's DC lawyer, but he didn't want anything to do with it. He really 
wasn't interested because I, I didn't have the big bucks to pay him. Uh, so I went on my own. <laughs> I was ad hoc, uh, pro vice uh, status. And I did my own motions. I did my own um, answers. And I did have the help of my a Virginia lawyer who, who was amazing and uh, helped me, but I did that part. And then on, we were getting ready to go to trial and I needed a DC lawyer. I couldn't go in there. I was gonna, I was tempted to just to, to defend myself, mm. but that's suicide, yeah. you know, especially when you're being sued for $135 million. How much? <laughs> $135 million. And wow. um, it was all punitive damages, uh, most of it, but uh, it was still an enormous amount to deal with. So I went, um, I, my, my Virginia lawyer was, um, he he was he he was admitted to the bar in DC with uh, because he knew he he had acquaintances in DC that vouched for him so he was my lawyer then and on the eve of the status conference to set the date for the trial I get this call at work at at four twenty well at four o'clock and my my attorney says he said meet me at Starbucks at sixteen twenty or 1720 and, and I need something, I have to discuss something with you. And I could tell there was glee in his voice. Mm. You know? <laughs> and, and he said they want to drop the case because they don't want to go further because I had, I had a lot of damning information about them. I could have presented. Um, Cause I had, I had spent years analyzing the data. I had 13 access databases of data. And I was correlating with everything. You know, I had all these flow charts and Excel spreadsheets, and I know how to do math, you know, predictive math. So I was able to. So do you that. would have exposed some deep, dark secrets. Yes, money, money trails. Yeah, money trails. Good. And uh, yeah, uh, but they wanted to drop it. And then I remember my lawyer telling me that, and I and and, he, and I had this look of disdain on my face. She goes, "What's wrong with you? It's over. You're done." And I said, "Well, I." actually wanted to go to trial. <laughs> he said, you have turned into a stress junkie. <laughs> so, and he, and he explained to me, he said that this is going to go on for, you know, if we go to trial, it's going to go on for many, many more years. And he said, I don't think I could live through something like this again. And he said, I don't think you could either. So I did, I dropped it. Um, but, um, and I waited, waited. Just one question. What, what were the grounds that they were trying to sue you? very odd uh, my husband had fired a person um, uh, his attorney it was his attorney when he was independent and he started suing him for discrimination because the attorney was a was was a, in a minority group and I had a laugh because my husband always hired minorities always 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 everybody in his firm was 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 uh, a, a different ethnic an ethnicity uh, or minority and women. He always hired women. So I had a laugh at, at the grounding of that, but then they started, they started saying that he took money and was sheltering it. And, and that's when I started getting deep into the money trails. And I had, um, I went through cases and cases of paper and, 10K filings and just entering everything in databases, anything with money. I'd, and then I start correlating everything and found a trail. And it wasn't him. It was them. 
<laughs> it was just cool. revenge. It was a revenge. It was a revenge uh, effort. They, it wasn't, they, it, it was a sick effort at just getting revenge because how dare I not drop out of settle with them because everybody else did. I wouldn't. If you had settled, what would it cost you? Um, my house. Everything. Yeah. I wasn't going to give him my house. Nope. That's insane. Yeah. But everybody else settled. I didn't. <laughs> wow. Good for you. Congrats. Yeah. Congrats. Well, yeah. Heard, and, and you wanted to bend them over a little bit and get yeah, a little bit to, of retribution. Yeah, I wanted the truth yeah. out. Yeah, I wanted the truth out. I did. I wanted everybody to know the truth. I don't blame you. Said, no, no, no. He says, he says, you won. He said, you won. And in a weird way, you won. I said, yeah, but it's the truth is still hidden. But he said, yeah. you know the truth. That should be enough. <laughs> and they disappeared. That's good. <laughs> and so what was the battle, uh, the other legal battle that you were? Oh, I went after with? the law, I'm, I'm not the law firm, I went after his company because um, they lied to me and I, I went after them for records and, oh, okay. um, and um, I settled with them. They settled with you out of court and you basically got what you were asking for? They were represented by one of the biggest law firms in the country. Uh, they brought all their lawyers into court and uh, they, they, they had all their computers and here, here I am with my lawyer with this legal pad, you know, hmm. <laughs> and, and, and the judge was not happy because they switched venues. They, they were, they originally filed in, in my county court, but then they switched to the general district court, which the judge was not happy about. They're abusing the system. <laughs> what a fascinating story. I, have you ever thought about talking to a screenwriter? And I thought about, books and uh things like that but it really sounds like an interesting story it is it is and and i just i still have a little fear that if i start talking too much and revealing too much that they'll come out of the woodwork and come back after me uh, okay i don't know they i think that they're they were they were so much older than i am so they probably aren't even here anymore because i'm <laughs> old now <laughs> yeah um, yeah, but you still have quite a few years left and, I hope so. you know, you, you want to be able to enjoy those, <laughs> yeah. you know, your twilight years, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, there's, there's quite a few writers who listen to this podcast. So if you're interested in working with somebody, you could, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've always thought that, um, I still have all my databases. <laughs> they're all on floppy disks, but they're mm -hmm. still there. <laughs> my God. I, I don't even know if you could find a reader that would work. I, I actually have a peripheral that will take a floppy disk. Oh, there you USB go. peripheral. Yeah, I made sure before everything went away, I bought one of those just in case I ever have to revisit those databases. That's cool. Floppy disks, man. Yes. A whole box of them because you can't get that much on them. So with that chapter behind you, yes. what did you decide to do professionally? Oh, and I, I, like I said, I worked at a law firm, which is very ironic considering I was sick of lawyers all my life. And then here I am working at a law firm with a hundred lawyers. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a construction law firm and it was a very good job. I really enjoyed it. But then in 2003, for 13, uh, things took an ugly turn. There was a trauma. So I decided to leave and do what I want to do for the rest of my life, um, which was photography. Um, 
unfortunately, a few years ago, I got very, very ill and all my grand plans had a shelled. <laughs> have, did you have any prior experience with photography? always an amateur photographer all my life. I had a dark room in my house, um, didn't do anything professionally. And when my husband was in right, he took my entire uh, camera suite to Russia for a trade show to photograph his displays. And he, when he died, I never got my camera suite back. Everything was gone. All my lenses, my camera body, all the filters. Uh, so I gave it up. I, I didn't I decide I'm done. I, it's too painful to think about that part. So I, I after my father died, um, I had to um, move my mother into my house. I shelled all social plans. I didn't, I, I felt responsible for her only and worked and came home and took care of her. And um, I love music. Um, that's the only thing that made me get through all these traumas was music. It's always been my escape. So I, uh, I, have, I, I had a friend who contacted me, wanted to go to a concert. And I thought, well, I can probably get away for an evening, stay overnight and go to a concert. So I did. And I became addicted to photography again because I used to shoot concerts. And um, I thought, I, I need to get back because I want to shoot the, the uh, dynamics of, 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 of a, on a stage. So I bought a digital camera. I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> Did you photograph the concert that you went to with your friend? I, I bought, I, 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 not the first one, but I went a, a second time and I took my, my, I bought a digital DSLR and a DSLR rather. And uh, I didn't realize that the rules have changed. You can't take those into a venue. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, as a, yeah. Unless you're hired, right? Yes. Yeah. So I, I, um, I started scoping out concerts that allow that, and I started shooting. And, and I, I, I never, a digital photography was foreign to me, actually. I didn't, it was completely different than what I did in the past with film. Uh, processing, I didn't understand how to do processing. I didn't know what ISO was, you know. <laughs> it was completely foreign. So I took a lot of courses on digital and, and became so hooked on it. And I and learned how to use Lightroom, learned how to use Photoshop. And then I, did some shooting for a music magazine, which I loved, <laughs> Miss, and uh, but they they are not they no longer have the magazine. So I um I I did a lot, I do a lot of nature and did concerts, but then I I fell into urbex photography, and that's now my life. <laughs> yes, yes, for for a while, for you for four years, six years, four years, four years, and writing for them too. And that's pretty much where you honed your skill, your craft. Yes, uh, I yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that was um that taught me how to shoot well in low light settings and um and then I really mastered it when I started going into abandonments. I understand that when you got back into photography, you wanted to get back into photography to photograph concerts. Yeah, concert photography did. When when you were a amateur photographer did you ever shoot at uh concerts i did i did and i i'm really upset because i when i was in college i used to see bruce springsteen before he was a name <laughs> and i used to shoot him and um and i had a major flood in my 
former house and I lost everything. Um, oh, yeah, terrible. so I don't have that, but I did. I shot. Those would have been priceless. Yeah. I know. <laughs> no. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and and I was able to. You were able to shoot using uh, SLRs in in concert venues at that time. I didn't realize the rules had changed so much in ten years. Actually, I didn't. I hadn't shot for maybe twenty years because when 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 my when I was in the midst of the lawsuit, I didn't do anything. So it was more like twenty years before I picked up a camera. And now I can't put it down. <laughs> I, I've seen some of your uh, concert photography. Do you still do concerts? Yes. It's incredible. Uh, all of your photography is just Thank beautiful. you. Thank you so much. And uh, do you ever get an opportunity now to go do that? Um, concert photography? Um, there is a venue in my area that you can take any kind of camera you want into it. So I love going there. But the, the, it's a small venue. So... You know, I can't get the big names, but it's still it's still dynamic and and wonderful, and I don't do mind. You, do you have any publishers that buy your work? I've sold a few. Uh, mostly, it's my um, Urbex stuff that that people buy. Well, let's go. Let's go right into that then. Okay, do you want to tell your origin story about that? Oh yeah, it it, it happened in an instant. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I fell into uh, Urbex uh, photography in, in a second, and it instantly changed the course of my photographic uh, direction. I was, it was in July of 2012. I was home on a Friday evening, trying to catch up on my massive workload, uh, doing research on my computer in my office. And uh, I was doing research on uh, a, legal, a, a legal aspect from Glendale Casino. Uh, in in Arizona, so I was do, I I took a break, came back, and instead of googling Glendale Casino, I just googled Glendale, and a strip of images populated my my uh, monitor, and it was uh, images from Glendale Asylum in Maryland, mm. and I clicked on one of the images, and it took me to an urbex photographer's website, and I fell down into the rabbit hole for till four a.m. I just said, I was so mesmerized by that subject matter and, and the moodiness and um, the dynamic ranges of light that I started researching abandoned opportunities the next day and found the subculture of urbex. I didn't even know it existed and requested membership to a, a group in my area, the DC Urban Explorers and was accepted and went on my first urbex explore in the end of july and it hasn't changed it it just changed my life what year was that 2012 how old were you at that time oh let's see how old was i um that would have been eight years 50s ago. 50s 50, 55 old old oh my I God. Was, I, yeah because it's um, um no 50 53 excuse me okay <laughs> Making myself older that you are <laughs> you are so brave. I'm telling you. I know, you, because but you know what? Okay, go ahead. Not only to to <laughs> enter a subculture <laughs> yes. of urbexers, you know that's that's kind of a fringe group yeah, of people, it is. and it's young, and, and it's young. But <laughs> and to, <male. laughs> you know, to 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 go out and explore these abandoned buildings, yeah. knowing that there's sometimes there's security. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> But you know what, Andrew? Uh, every urbex 
group that explorers should take an old person with them because that is their ticket to get off. <laughs> if they get caught. <laughs> like if you, if you got a if you got an older person with you, you're probably not doing any damage to the property. Right. Right. <laughs> I, it's exactly true because I can I I've been busted a too, few too many times in the past year. It's security's getting cheap with all the apps <laughs> yeah. on phones and uh, so I hate that part of it. I hate. I absolutely hate sneaking around. Yeah. If I can get access, it's the best way. But you know, you can't always get access. Most of the time, you can't. Now, and- the the <laughs> the true urbexers would argue with that. That that's part of the appeal is the the adrenaline rush of trying not to get caught. I know I can do it. To me, it's the composition. <laughs> that's yeah. That's one of the reasons why I don't do it. I don't do a lot of urbex because I don't want to get busted. You know. It, it is, and and I'm I'm a I'm a big uh, I'm, I'm risk averse i like to, to take the the long way around to be yeah. safe and whereas some of my friends they want to go through the front door they don't care nobody cares <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so the group that you've been with have, is this the same group of people that you've been with since you yeah, started yeah i'm i'm very I, yeah i'm very close i i yeah. i actually live in the house of um <laughs> One of my urbex friends. Awesome. <laughs> she's an urbex. So she's she's a we're we're middle aged group actually. Okay. We have some that are very young, but uh, the group that I pal around with are mostly middle aged. I'm I'm the oldest, unfortunately, but um, we do have one. The the president or the the leader of our DC Urban Explorer group. He's very young, but he's he's with us quite a bit. And and if we ever get we we've been we've been caught a few times. He always gets the most grief because he's the youngest. <laughs> So I'm looking at your website, mm-hmm. cindyvasco.com, mm-hmm. and I see some uh, some very interesting locations that you visited. Yes. <laughs> uh, looks like there is a prison. Yes, I've been in a lot of prisons. There's some of my favorite um, sites to photograph. Uh, Holmesburg Prison is one that, that I post a lot of, um, and... And also Eastern State Penitentiary, which you can visit. That's a that's a, an arrested decay museum, so to speak. Uh, but Holmesburg, I had access to. It's on a side of a active police site, so there's a yeah. So you don't you don't go sneaking in there. But um, I did have access to that site twice, and I'm very grateful because they don't let any more photographers in. So. I'm grateful. And I've been to other, Lorton prison was amazing too. They're converting that into condos and uh, art communities. And this is one thing that I'm so grateful to, to urbex photographers for is those abandoned decayed states of those buildings to me is, is just, it's a beautiful state of arrested decay. Yeah. They don't, it doesn't decay any further, but they don't bring it back to its, original pristine look. as soon as a developer comes along and decides that it's an eyesore and they want to mow it down and put on condos or a shopping mall it's gone forever yeah yeah the architecture is so beautiful in so many of these places the architecture is stunning exactly and the only thing we have of those remains is the photography that urbexers have shot you- Got it. <laughs> exactly. I, I like to think I'm contributing to history. <laughs> are there any, besides your books, are there any publications that your um, photography is printed yes. in? Yes. Uh, Nat- National Geographic contacted me a couple of years ago, and they were doing a children's book. 
uh, don't read this before bed. <laughs> <laughs> and they, used, they had a chapter on Island of the Dolls, which is a really creepy place I visited in Mexico. Uh, so they used some of my photos in that. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine that. a child, a child um, reading <laughs> that book because it's, that, that island was creepy. <laughs> yeah, those, those dolls. Yes. And I th I've heard, I think that place was like uh, featured on, a, on an episode of Ghost Hunters. Yes, yes. It was, and it, yeah, it's, it, it was, I fly to, I flew to Mexico for that. Oh, wow. <laughs> the beaches, I went for that. And yeah. it was a, it was a ch challenge to get to. You had a, you had a hire uh, a boat, boatman, uh, that is on a boat that looks like a, a gond sort of like a gondola. And it takes a couple hours to get to that little island down a canal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was, it's a very strange place. But. Yeah, these, these dolls are creepy looking. Yes. They almost look possessed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, according to ghost hunters, some yes, of them are. Yes, yes. <laughs> Did you have any, uh, have you, in all of your explorations, have you ever had any paranormal or unusual activity? I haven't. Um, I, um, I purposely never think about that stuff when I go in. I don't want to be spooked. I get spooked about other things like finding real people in places like oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't, but I have had some images that have some unexplainable phenomena on it, uh, shadows and orbs and, and so, one particular one, there's absolutely no lighting in, in this one corridor that wouldn't project a shadow, but there was a shadow that looked like a human crouching in a corner. Is that on your website? No. Oh. It's not that interesting. You, it's not that it's okay. not that interesting of a photo. And I don't even know why I shot it because it wasn't an interesting composition, but it compelled me to shoot there and, and there it was. I mean, I well, if, if I can make a suggestion, add a category to your website called anomalies. <laughs> because paranormal, the paranormal yeah. community is exploding right now ghost hunters and mediums very and people popular. like yeah. that. It's very popular. So, you know, you could yeah, potentially get to, more traffic to your website. I've been to so many places where ghost hunters have been um, so many places. Mm -hmm. And I know people in my, my urbex community locally that have had experiences. So um, especially in, in there's one that I shot at several times, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, there's apparently a lot of activity in that place. And, and speaking to the docent of that place, uh, she's had her hair pulled a few, a few too many times. Interesting. <laughs> where, where is the gallery for that uh, asylum? It's, um, uh, I don't have a specific gallery for that, but, um, it's, um, I do have images from that um, on my website. I don't, I don't have, I have, I, I've been to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sites that if I put galleries up, it, my website would be <laughs> too, too big. <laughs> I, I was just curious to, cause I'm looking at your website while we're talking and it's giving, it's prompting me for, for more questions. Yeah, I am. Um, it is going to be a, a chapter in my West Virginia book that I submitted to the publisher um, a couple weeks ago. Um, it's a very fascinating place. I'll, I'll, I'm going to go on my website now and tell you what block it's on. Those uh, asylums are just such a curious 
you know, it's such a curious place to. They're sad, sad. but the architecture of uh, of of the Kirkbride asylums, Kirkbride style asylums, are just magnificent. They're they're just marvels. Uh, aside from paranormal, when you go into different locations, do you get odd feelings when you're in those places? I again, I purposely never let my mind wander there. Um, I do, if I hear something, I get really spooked. And it's, it's only because I don't want to run into other people. Cause we, <laughs> I don't, I mean, we do run into other urbexers, but uh, I don't want to run into people that are in that building. <laughs> so I, I purposely do not. Um, well, yeah. I mean, the danger is you could run into homeless people that want to protect their turf drug addicts that might be looking to rob somebody. So there, there's a serious danger from humans that could exactly. be. Exactly. And we go into uh, most of the places we got there. They're, they're in communities that are really um, a lot of derelict buildings. So they're not safe. <laughs> uh, now here, here's a question for your vaccine. Do you ever take props in with you? I don't. I'm not one to stage. Um, I, I know a lot, I do, we do run into uh, facilities that we could tell other Orbexes were there because they staged the items on tables and furniture, but no, I don't. I, I'm, I'm in and out quickly. I don't take a tripod. If I, if I have access, I'll take a tripod with me because that's always the best case scenario. But if we're going in, uh, I don't, I, we're in and out quickly. Just. You do you typically go at night or do you go during the no. day? No, 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 go at, going during the day, early morning. Yeah, and you never go alone. You always go with a group. Never. And you don't leave anybody. If they get caught, you're all caught. <laughs> That's smart. You know, yes. and you got a better chance of getting mm. off right. uh, with a with a warning at that point. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. We usually if they catch one person, they might just take them to jail. Yeah. Yeah, it's more but typically work. won't they just write you a ticket? <laughs> they don't. They just they just tell us to leave, and we do. I mean, if they were going, <laughs> if if they were going to do anything, wouldn't it be just a ticket, or would well, they? Well, there are some. I do I do extensive research before we go anywhere, and I do see what how how trespassing is handled in those facilities. And if if there if there are facilities around here that you I wouldn't step foot on because of the consequences are just too too great. They, they, they send you, they charge you, you know, you, you, you get booked. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't go there. Yeah. A fine, a fine would be okay, but a night in jail, that's a quite no. an inconvenience. Right. And um, yeah, we, we've, we've been caught by the police a couple times mm -hmm. <laughs> and they just, they, I, I swear to God, it's our age. That's yeah. <laughs> keeping us. Well, and also they know that you're not there to do right. anything intentionally. We're annoying. I know we annoy. Yeah. We, we're just annoying to the enforcement community because we're pain and you know what. <laughs> now you, let's talk a little bit about the research that you do. Mm -hmm. You, you, um, how do you find the locations that you go? Well, we, to? we have our community exchanges information up we have a, a vast community that people we trust not not just locally but up and down the east coast of the united states so we do exchange information to people we trust if somebody reveals a name of a location then they're off the list they don't get any information mm -hmm. so we 
but and then I look I I look at the sites uh, thoroughly. I look at satellite maps and, and look at everything and do research and to see. Uh, that's cool. What's there? That's yeah. smart. Yeah, that way you yeah. know where to enter the. Location. Yeah, usually, usually that's what we get the information about, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and we provide it too. If um, well, and like you said, what have other urbexers experienced if they've get gotten caught in those locations? Yeah, it's not worth it to me. I've I've been doing this now for eight years, and I have thousands and thousands of images. So mm -hmm. it's not that I have a need to go into take a high risk anymore. What are the chances if you had to run? What are the chances of you actually getting away? <laughs> On my first urbex experience, my first day, my first time, I was running in five minutes, <laughs> and I came back. Uh, yes, I was. It, it was my first time, and I met I met a group from the DC Urban Explorers in a parking lot, and they were. I was. They were. I met four young men very young and i thought oh no they're not gonna want me up in their group <laughs> and they didn't roll their eyes they were very pleasant and very kind and they didn't discriminate because i was older than they were and we we go and we go through a hole in the fence and i'm inside this building and just in awe of everything and one of the other guys comes to me and he, he comes in he says he goes just want to let you know there's a security van circling the perimeter and, and i said what do we do do we run he goes no just stay here for a second he said and as soon as the families we're gonna run out of here yeah. <laughs> cool good good story do you have any other stories where you might have run into like you said like you're always wary of running into people did you ever have any one yeah i have two that okay. are really one was a couple years ago we were in a school in dc and um it was a it was a good location and we it was four floors so we were on the third the second floor uh there's a basement of three floors so we were on the second floor and um we were going up to the third floor and all of a sudden i started um coughing and having a hard time breathing and choking and there was some chemical smell in the air that was horrible absolutely horrible and it was making me sick and and then we heard something fall on the floor up on the third floor and 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 i started to panic and my friend goes up to the top level and puts her head around the corner and there's a guy looking at her so we take off <laughs> and there are two staircases in school so we went down one he ran around to the other one and confronted us and wanted to know what we were doing there. Why, how did we find out about this place? And his pupils were the size of saucers. Oh, wow. So you know that, what they were doing up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's what I did when I got home. I, 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 I Googled what does a meth lab smell like? Yeah. That was my first way. As soon as you said you were coughing and having a chemical smell as yes. in my head. So we're going out and as we're going out this, these, giant men i mean six foot five six foot six are coming in i thought oh no you know but we just they just ignored us we just went out and, and then we get in the car and my friend wanted to go back in she there was something she wanted to shoot on the third floor and i said i am not going back in there i am not and we had a pretty much tire down until she couldn't go back is this your roommate yes oh, oh. 
<laughs> yeah, she has no fear. And, yeah, I guess. But she did. She wouldn't. She couldn't get any of us to go back with her. But she found somebody to go back a couple of weeks later. And fortunately, there was nobody there. But that was terrifying. Then and then another situation was we were in a a government greenhouse complex. It was amazing. Uh, and we're wandering around, and we go into the main building, and there's writing, very neat writing text written on all the walls and it's all biblical verses oh, just wow. everywhere and i go into this one room and it it looks like a you know those stainless steel doctor's tape uh, yes. doctor's tape uh reclining tables that you sit on when you go to a doctor's office it looks mm -hmm. like something in there and on that wall there there were all these horrifying uh, expressions uh swastikas and, oh, and, wow. and messages of hate and just terrifying. And I remember saying, I said, I don't want to be here when this person returns. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he did, but I didn't run into him, but my friend did. He said he was, he was okay. He was just very aloof. He just came in and walked out. So hmm. that, but, but that kind of stuff scares me a little bit. It's like a horror movie. <laughs> Have you ever ran into some, so like lots of graffiti, I'm sure you've seen tons yes. of graffiti. Have you ever seen like any evidence of like satanic worshipers or All anything the time. Like that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's kind uh, of scary stuff. Yeah, too. it is. Um, I d yeah, there's a, it's in Maryland. It's, it's in a national, it's in a national park actually, but you really can't get up to it. It's, it's very strange you have to cross railroad tracks to get to it and that's not legal but it's a it's a it's an old church that was left on top of the mountain and the only thing left is is the structure of the altar hmm. and um there was it looked like there's some strange things going on in that on that altar <laughs> it's spectacular but some there was a an iron cross hanging from the top of the there's like a gazebo over the altar and an, uh, a huge, maybe nine foot tall, wide uh, iron cross that was hanged from it. And, and I went back a second time and it was gone. I said, who the hell car carried that thing down the mountain? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't like uh, running into people. <laughs> I like it to be a solitary thing. <laughs> I have to assume that you've taken pictures of all of these incidents that we were just discussing is that yeah i've I managed to get photos <laughs> before um a few a few times um sometimes i won't go win a bill because i have a bad feeling about it that's what i meant when i asked if oh yeah you ever had a weird feeling at yes a um i i have it, it just it's it's usually activity around the building that that concerns me there's just too much activity uh, it's not isolated. In those situations, it is always good to listen to your gut. Yeah, I agree. We went, <laughs> one time, we've been trying to get into this place in Baltimore for years. My friend and I, we've been trying. We Every time we try to get in, it's it's been barricaded. And we kind of know it's been barricaded by another urban explorer, which really irritates me. <laughs> but, but the third time we went down, it was raining. And, and we said, we, we went to Baltimore for something else. And, and I said, let's drive by that place again, see if we're lucky. And, and the door was wide open. And oh, this is our chance <laughs> to get in. And 
we were walking towards it and all of a sudden these giant horse flies are buzzing us and wouldn't leave us alone and as we get closer we we smelled something really putrid and <laughs> i said i am not going in there <laughs> yeah, that, it's a little alarming to yeah. say the least i would say <laughs> You don't so, want to, I mean, you don't ever want to find a dead body. But no, I, I think it was probably a dog or something. Because I, I, I was watching, the, I was looking at the papers and I didn't see anything. And But yeah, I don't ever want to find something like that. I don't blame you. So there's, there's um, a couple of things that, uh, uh, you know, as an urban explorer, you have to do just common sense. Yes. Protect yourself, keep yourself safe, some rules. Mm-hmm. What what are those rules that you abide? Um, well, the the biggest biggest rules you you don't go alone. You go with a group. Um, I mean, two at a minimum. But I like I usually go with groups of four or five. Uh, not too big because then you'll attract too much attention. And uh, I'll never break in. I will never. That's one thing I will not do. I'll I'll crawl under a fence. I'll crawl through a window. I'll go through an open door. But I will never break into anything and that's that's not wise to do i don't care how awesome the place is you don't want to do that and um just stay with your group i mean that's a couple times i've separated and, and it just freaks me out because i can't find them um you, you really need to i'd be more careful about wandering away especially in a big industrial complex right um, and, do you guys use oh, walkies walkies what are walkies? What walkie talkies radios oh no we don't no but yeah, we have our phones, but you usually don't have a cell signal where we go. <laughs> but and and we'll always look at look at your ground, look at the floor. I mean, that's it's and and I'm very cautious about taking steps. I I did have a, a big scare last year when I went to a, a glass factory in New Jersey, and it was fabulous. Uh, and there was this big catwalk in the complex in the building where all the industrial equipment was and it's a it was a mesh a, a wire mesh floor so i'm walking around and walk everywhere and, and then my friend says be careful over there there's a big hole in the floor and there's this giant hole <laughs> and i was walking all over that area <laughs> so from that point on i don't i i'm very careful about looking down <laughs> since your since the incident you had with the meth uh yes. cold, do you guys do you guys wear any kind of respiratory protection you know, I have one. I have a bunch, but I don't. I should. It's not wise. Um, if if there's a strong sense of mold, I do put it on because that is very dangerous. Yes. Well, so is so is asbestos. True. <laughs> but um, I I don't wear. I I should, and I'm wearing them all the time now. I'll probably be used to it now to go when I go when I do go exploring again. Oh yeah, with the with the code. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it won't everywhere. be it won't be foreign <laughs> to me anymore so yeah. i probably will now <laughs> but i i do have a but of serious respirators but i um i i i just i'm i'm very you know your 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 sense of um anxiety heightens when you're inside so i get it, it just makes me feel warmer than i want to be <laughs> with that thing on my face <laughs> It's it, I you know I I honestly don't understand sometimes why I do this because it's always a heightened level of anxiety when I go. <laughs> uh, well, that may be part of the appeal. Maybe maybe I am a stress junkie. <laughs> uh, 
but it, not only that though the the you're experiencing something that few people only get to experience yes i i it's it's been it's been the best time of my life actually to do this i just enjoy it i i actually enjoy processing more than anything that's what i i i love to do with photography bringing my stuff home and then loading it and then working on them that's my favorite part well your your photos do not look heavily edited thank you yeah I mean, I, some of it I can tell it's been edited. It doesn't look over edited though, so you have a nice, a nice balance of it's that. It's taken years. <laughs> now, you, you, this is what you do for uh, a career. For I, well, I, I also shoot events, but there aren't any events happening right now. <laughs> yeah. So, do you, do your book sales actually make enough income no. for you? <laughs> Where where are your books available? They're on uh, Amazon's the easiest place to find them. Uh, Amazon and then and then the publisher sites, Font Hill and Arcadia. Is there any is there any advantage to people buying the books directly from your site, or are they not available on your site? I don't I don't have a, a shopping cart set up on my site yet. Um, I, I said I have to <laughs> work it on my website and revise it, but uh, it's Amazon uh, provides discounts, which is probably the best place to buy them. Are they print? They're, they're yeah, they're print. They're print. And uh, do you have an opportunity to sign them before they get shipped out? I I they ship them. They're they're shipped from England, so no, <laughs> the publishers in England. Um, oh, that reminds me. You know what? The um, do you know? Uh, Janine Pendleton. Yes, from, I do. Sitting Urbix. Yes, yeah. yeah, she's well. I know her from Twitter. We communicate quite a bit. I. She's amazing. She's done an abandoned Pennsylvania book, also. Yes, I know. She's she's been all over the world. Her stuff is. She does some beautiful photography. Yeah, too. she is. She's amazing. I and she's, she's gone into sites that I could only dream of going yeah, to. Fukushima. Fukushima. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm so jealous. Yeah, I am too, man. Yeah, and 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 the. Um, uh, amusement park in Tokyo and oh man yeah I'd love that would be I'm afraid if I'd go there there wouldn't be anything that would surpass that awe you know it would be the end <laughs> that would be like the urbexers dream I have a good friend that um has trips there and I would love to go on one of his trips but unfortunately he he had to cancel everything this year as well everything's canceled yes I know it's just so strange. I mean, that's why I'm posting nature photos every day too, because I think uh, reality's stranger than my images now. <laughs> I've seen, yeah, I've seen some of your abandoned DC photos. Yeah, I don't, I don't go out, but I, I shot those from the car. Uh, I, I was able to pull it into the intersection and shoot from the window. I mean, you never could do that in DC. <laughs> you never. I mean, there are lots of police down in D.C., but um, but it, it, it was spooky. Would they hassle you if you got out to walk around? I, well, we did. We got out. We walked around the Lincoln Memorial because it's a big open space and the Vietnam Memorial. Um, the National Mall is huge. So we got out and we didn't come in contact with anyone. Now, I was concerned they would hassle us, but they didn't. Um, and there, there were so few people. I only saw a few people down there. Uh, which made for great photos. 
it's everybody's supposed a mandatory stay at home order, but there's no teeth in any of our uh, in any of the orders. Uh, that's good because it's not constitutional. It's it's literally a violation of your civil rights to force you to stay at home. And there's people that are fighting back against that because it's there's there's a lot of people that believe that it's an unnecessary requirement for everybody to stay at home. I'm scared. <laughs> if I got it, I'll probably be dead. So. Then yeah, then by all means take extra precautions. I mean, I but, shouldn't probably go in urbexing, but I've done it eight. Have years. you been out shooting? Uh, I went. I just just the DC streets. That's a yeah no. Um, I my some of my friends have, but see, I don't I don't think it's wise to go out urbexing right now uh, because everybody's home. Everybody's going to see activity, and if you get caught, I'm sure the police aren't going to be very kind, no matter how old you are. <laughs> you know, it's it's annoying. You have a you have a stay at home order. You're not supposed to be out doing this stuff. <laughs> so I I I won't go. Not now. Here in Vegas, we don't have that stay-at-home requirement. Oh, you don't. Never. No. Not no no not wow. at all. No, we've we've always been able to to come and go as we want to. Yeah, it's, it's... Uh, parks are open, but um, they did shut down Lake Mead and the national parks. Yeah, they're the other yeah, shut down around here too. Uh, Northern Virginia shut. We got an extended order until May twenty eighth, and DC is till mid June now, June eighth, I think. Your next um, publication comes out when? Uh, my pens- uh, Northern New Jersey is coming out in, um, it was supposed to come out in June. It's not coming out till August now. And I have two more. I have Eastern Pennsylvania and uh, West Virginia in the loop. Uh, so they should uh, be coming out probably October. And those will be available on Amazon? Yes, yes. Yeah, Amazon is... I think the best way it's it's discounted and fast. Um, I don't I don't know. Um, I wouldn't wait for them to come from England. I'll tell you. Right. Do you, do you have any distribution in um, bookstores? I do in, in the regions where the yes. Um, cool. Yeah. So in, like small bookstores or with the, yeah the- yeah independent bookstores and and the chains uh, Barnes and Noble, but they're in the region so. Catskills would not be in this bookstores here. It would be in the ones in New York or um, Western Pennsylvania are in Pittsburgh and that area, not not in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. Now, what do you do to extend your reach uh, and build your your audience? I I found that when I use hashtags, when I would post photos, I got noticed by a lot of publishers. That's how the publisher found me. Uh, Flickr is also, um, a, was a very good source. A lot of them look at Flickr and you have to have good meta tags and they'll do a search on that. Flickr was very good to me and uh, SmugMug too, I think. Uh, but, and, and how you meta tag your photos on your website and, um, you know the hidden hidden codes mm-hmm. that helps a lot okay that has a bigger reach i i'm on instagram too i i just i have a hard time with instagram it drives me crazy but i need to give it more serious attention <laughs> you know do, do you know um uh one of the uh, 
the the post-apocalyptic community that I'm involved in on Twitter, there's a lot of writers and and people like that um, that uh, that also follow Urbex. Uh, do you correspond with any of those people? Uh, some, yeah, some. They, we follow each other. I don't know. I don't can't say I know any personally. Um, it just started actually, uh, maybe because I started following you. It's fun. I, I didn't know there was a PA community, just like I didn't know there was an urbex community subculture. But I, I do find I've always been fascinated by that subject. <laughs> Growing up, movies and things. <laughs> if you've listened to any of my other episodes of my podcast, I've been like a post-apocalyptic junkie since oh, I was yeah, a little kid. Oh yeah, yeah, especially movies, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, movie, movies, books, games. Yep, yep. You name it. Yeah. Yep. Um, but those people are really, uh, I, I don't know if it's a tight knit community, but they, everybody's trying to help each other out. That's very refreshing. Uh, well, let's, let's wrap this up. I'm just gonna, just gonna say a quick goodbye. Uh, thank you for joining me on dead end radio, Cindy. Is there any other place besides the website that people could find your work? Uh, just Twitter and, um, I'm, I'm on Flickr and I'm on I'm on Smug Mug, but Flickr is broader. For, and, and I'm on Instagram. Instagram. So, so Instagram, Twitter, Flickr mm-hmm. uh, are the three main. Yes. Okay. Social medias. And then. And my website, which I'm going to be updating. <laughs> good. I look forward to seeing some new photos. Well, yes. Not new for you, but they're new for right. the, the public. Right. Yes. Uh, and then. Um, well, I hope to have you on again sometime. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate you coming on and look forward to talking to you again. And I'll see you around the Twitter. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Cindy, take care. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War and its effects on our culture, technology, and the future. So join me and together we'll explore this fascinating period of history and examine the incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, and culture, and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. My goal is to explore these topics with the audience, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. If you or someone you know has knowledge about the Cold War, or any of the topics that we discuss on this program, please get in touch and let's talk. It could be a great conversation for a future episode, and I'm especially interested to talk with anyone who has first-hand knowledge about the Cold War. Likewise, if you have any questions or comments to help improve the show, drop me an email, hit me on Twitter, or leave me a voicemail that may be included in an upcoming episode. And one last thing before I sign off. Dead Hand Radio has partnered with a powerful group of podcasters to form a new podcasting network called SIP Network or Slightly Irregular Podcast Network. SIP Network is a group of high-energy, positive-minded individuals providing a resource where listeners can get easy access to a wealth of entertainment, education, and positive input for your daily routine. The podcasts you'll find in the SIP Network include Angry Dad Podcast is about fitness and motivation, Back in Time Podcast is about movies and entertainment, Dead Hand Radio is about Cold War history, technology, and the future. Fave 5 from fans is a favorite five lists of just about everything. From the Waste 
is about post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction with a dash of sci-fi. Paranormal Pativity is all things paranormal and unexplained. The Terrible Terror podcast is about horror movie reviews and walkthroughs. And the podcast from another world is about horror and sci-fi film discussions. Check out sipnet.us for more info and listen to all these great shows. Thanks for listening to Dead Hand Radio. This is Andrew Hall signing off.